Well, let me begin by saying good morning and welcome again now to those of you who are not only here in our traditional service, but welcome and good morning also to those of you in our contemporary service and those of you who are joining us via broadcast. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm really glad that we have this opportunity to be together as one church family and learn and grow from God's Word, even if we're not all in the same room at the same time. And speaking of learning and growing from God's Word together, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, but you'd like to have one or don't have one you're comfortable with on your phone or your tablet or us, are going to come up the room in both of our venues right now, and they've got Bibles you can borrow. Please feel free to use that right now. If you'd like to, you can put it on the shelf in the back of either worship venue after our worship services today. Now, some of you may be wondering just why I brought these golf clubs up here this morning, and it was just to make you smile. Just doesn't it feel like spring is coming? I mean, I looked at the weather this morning, and the next 10 days all have high temperatures above freezing. Hallelujah! I mean, isn't that awesome? That's like a work of God. And actually, not only do the next 10 days all have, you know, in the, in the forecast anyway, all have high temperatures above freezing, but today's low temperature is supposed to be above freezing. Oh my goodness, how, how did that happen? Okay, that's not really why I brought the clubs up, but that is pretty exciting. Uh, those of you who know me will know that I'm not a golfer. Uh, I can't even say I'm not really a golfer. I mean, I'm not a golfer at all. I've hit probably five rounds of golf in my whole life one of those in the last 10 years. So those of you who are golfers are like, you're just like crying inside for me right now a little bit, I know. But I have, I think I'll probably become a golfer someday. Like I feel myself getting sucked in just from a distance, but it hasn't got me yet. So the nuances of the game are lost on me. However, there are some things I know. One thing I know, ooh, I got my Bible down for a second. One thing I know is that this is a putter. No, I'm just kidding. One thing I know is this is not a putter, right? This is a driver. So it's really good at some stuff. It's really good at getting the ball, well, if you're good at using it, it's really good at getting the ball off the tee a long way down the fairway. But if your ball is stuck in the bunker, not a lot of help, right? Okay, I know a few other things. I know that, now these are not my clubs, so I'm not even taking the covers off all of them because I don't want to mess around with somebody else's clubs. This is a putter, you can tell, right, even though the cover's on it, this is a putter. Not really good for getting off the tee, right? In the bag here are lots of other irons, lots of other wedges that all have their own purpose for taking the ball from where it is and moving it up the course. And I know that it's not really that great to play a whole round of golf with one club, right? That's a lot harder. Although I did some reading about that. It's really interesting if you haven't. Some people think that if once you're, once you're a decent golfer, that if you play a whole round or a few rounds with like just your seven iron or something, that really improves your shot making. Maybe some of you want to try that sometime. And I know there are one club tournaments and there are three club tournaments, but really there's a reason that most of us will lug these things around and the PGA professionals keep a full bag of, it's 14 clubs, right? 14 clubs? Because, yeah, see, I'm not a golfer. 14 clubs because it really helps to have the right club to move you up the course from where you find the ball to where you're trying to go. And I'm telling you this this morning because I think that a lot of us are living the Christian life like we're playing with one club. And what I mean by that is specifically how it is that we relate to and understand the death of Jesus. Now, the death of Jesus is central to our faith, central to our understanding of who Jesus is. We worship and follow the Jesus who said to us, take up your cross and follow me. As Christians, we are taught by the writings of the Apostle Paul, who said to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Corinth, a group of Christians who have a lot in common with us, sometimes more than we, like to, more than we might like to believe, he said to them, while I was with you, I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, 
is central to our understanding of who Jesus is and our relationship with him. But I think most of us are playing the Christian life with a one-club understanding of what the cross means for us, and we need the whole bagful. One good reason we need the whole bagful is because I think when we read the Bible well, we see that the cross means all kinds of different things for the Christian life, and we just want to learn those things. We would want to be intellectually responsible enough to understand the faith that we share. But more than that, I think our lives need everything the cross means for us. We struggle with so many different things. We struggle with guilt, sometimes with shame, which is different than guilt. We struggle with anger, with the persistence of sin in our lives. We struggle with irreconciled relationships, brokenness between us, lack of forgiveness that we practice with one another, and we're like swinging the putter at all of them, when in fact the cross has so much power to change our lives. If we'll open our minds and open our hearts to understand all that God wants to and will do in our lives by means of the cross of Christ. And the final reason I think this is really important for us to understand the whole bagful of what the cross means for us is that I think our world needs it. There are a lot of reasons why a lot of people in the world have said no to Jesus. It's complicated, and I'm not going to try to oversimplify it. But I think one reason is that the Jesus that the church has presented to them is kind of a one-dimensional Jesus. And I think there's a lot more to the picture than that. I think we're kind of playing with a one-club understanding of the meaning of the cross of Christ. And we want the whole bagful. And over the course of the next six weeks or so, between now and Easter Sunday, during this season that Christians call Lent, it's a time of year when each year we remember the cross of Christ. And this year what I want to do is we're going to go Sunday by Sunday through a whole variety of the things that the cross of Jesus Christ means for us. And today we're going to start with maybe the most familiar, maybe the most famous, maybe the club you reach for the most often. And I want to start by reading to you a passage from the book of Romans. This is from Romans chapter 3, and it introduces us to what the cross means for us as God moves us from guilt to forgiveness. This is what Romans chapter 3 says in verse 23. For all have sinned, by the way, next time you're feeling judgmental about somebody, just let's all remember that part, okay? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. As a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. Here in Romans, the Bible teaches us that we are sinful, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we don't live up to the expectations that God has for humanity, that God would justly be angry about that, but that because of Jesus, there is forgiveness for us. Now, this is a, maybe a fairly familiar formula to some of us. It's a, very, it's a pretty famous passage of the Bible, and yet for as familiar as this might be to some, I think it's something that we're actually still fairly uncomfortable with. We're uncomfortable with it for a number of reasons. One reason that we are uncomfortable with it is because we don't really like thinking about guilt very much. We don't really enjoy taking responsibility for what we have done wrong. I mean, we do this all the time, right? Every age of us does this from kids to adults. 
We like to shift the blame for what we did somewhere off of us. Right? It's not my fault I did that wrong. It's the circumstances that just was so hard. Was no, I had no chance of doing it right. I blame it on my circumstances. I blame it on somebody else. And maybe they were guilty too. And so now let's just pay attention to their guilt and not mine. We love to shift the blame off of ourselves. We don't like thinking about our own guilt. So this is not very comfortable for us. It's also, I think, not very comfortable for most people to think about God in terms of anger or judgment or punishment, or that great biblical word, wrath. At least not when we're thinking about God's relationship with us. Some people seem to be okay thinking about God and that relationship to other people, and that's a problem too. But we're uncomfortable with this whole dynamic. And yet, uncomfortable with it as we might really be, it doesn't make our guilt any less real. Christians believe that God made a good world that God made a good world and loves everything in his creation. Every human being, every animal, everything, every part of his world, God is committed to and loves. And in the biblical creation stories, God entrusted human beings with the care of his creation, that we would care about and serve one another and all the animals and all the plants and all the relationships and all the things in God's creation. He entrusted us with that task. And we have failed in that task. Or at least I know I have. I know I have not lived up to the precious trust that God has given me to care for one another and for all the things in his world. I can look back in my own story and I can think of friendships and relationships that I have been in where I have been so self-absorbed so destructive and so hurtful. I mean, it's embarrassing. I look back and I know that there's, there's wreckage behind me. I have hurt people. There's carnage in my story. That's not good. God gave me a task to care and to love, to love my neighbor as myself, and I have not. I do this at an individual level. I know that I have, and I even continue to do it at like a more corporate, systemic level. I participate in all kinds of injustice and brokenness in our world. I like to get the best deal that I possibly can on stuff. I love it when food and clothing and things like that are as cheap as they possibly can be. Not that I'm cheap, you know, don't accuse me of that. <laughs> Maybe I am. But I know that sometimes me getting the best price possible on stuff means there's pressure on producers to keep wages as low as possible on the people who make the stuff that I enjoy, whether that happens here in the U.S. or internationally. And I don't know all the right political solutions to those things. I don't understand all the socioeconomic mechanisms that are very complicated that contribute to those things. And I don't want to pretend that I do know the political solutions. But I know that I'm part of the problem. I participate in the problem without even being able to fix it. Sometimes I'm guilty at an individual level. Sometimes I'm guilty at a corporate systemic level. Sometimes it's just the stuff that I don't do at all, not even just what I do. You know, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, I was with a, a group from our church. We were traveling in Israel, and one of the last days of our trip, we visited the Holocaust Memorial and Museum in Jerusalem. By the way, visiting a Holocaust Museum in Israel is a heck of a thing to do. And we didn't get to spend very much time there. We had to kind of rush through, which may kind of be a sin in itself. 
But as we were going through some of the displays, I remember one thing that made an impact on me, and there were many, but one was this sign that was up there, this display that said, a nation is not only what it does, a nation is what it tolerates. I thought, yeah, that's, that's true, actually. It's true of me, and it doesn't have to be a nation, like a, a group of people, any community of people, whether it's a nation or a church or a family or whatever. We are not only what we do, we are also what we put up with. We are what we tolerate. We are what we conscience and what we perpetuate. I can apply that to myself. There's all kinds of stuff I know that's happening in my world and in my life that I'm not doing anything about, that I know that God wants me to do something about. I've failed at this task that God gave me and that God gave us. And it was a precious task to care for precious people for a world that God loves. And I'm not here to judge you, but I bet you're in this with me. And how should God feel about that? How should a good God who loves his world react to that? I think God is justly angry about that. We would want a God who would care and be upset about that. We would want, we would expect this of other people. We would expect other people to be upset when we hurt somebody who's vulnerable or somebody that they care about. How much more would we expect that of a God who loves his world? And so God's wrath over our sin is actually a function of his love for us and for his creation. It's part of his character. It's not something we need to play off against God's love or balance against God's love. It's a function of God's love. And we know this not only from reading passages, like some of us think, well, that like punishment or anger stuff, that was Old Testament, but the New Testament is nice, right? But we know this from looking at Jesus himself. And I think a good rule of thumb is when you want to understand what the character of God is like, just look at the story of Jesus. Look at his life. That's where we learn about God. And Jesus himself, we see him getting angry with people who hurt other people, with people who put burdens on other people, especially when it was religious people who were doing this in the name of God. And that's me, right? I do that stuff. And probably you do too. And I think that I deserve whatever wrath God would feel over my sin. But Jesus steps in and in his death brings the other side of God's love in front of his wrath. God's mercy and forgiveness come to the fore. Remember that passage we read from Romans that got us started here? It said that Jesus was a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Now, I have a slide I want to put up here with the word atonement. Atonement is an old English word, and like many old English words, it kind of gives a picture of what it means. The word atonement is really a picture of at-one-ment. It means being put back together, being at one when before you were not at one. And we were not one with God. We were separated from God. Our sin and God's just anger over our sin separated us from God. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus became a sacrifice of atonement for us, that he took the wrath for us, that he took the punishment for us and became a sacrifice on our behalf so that we would receive the grace of God instead. And this wasn't even just like a new idea that all of a sudden God invented with Jesus, like kind of a plan B. 
Rather, God had been seeing this and speaking this already through his prophets, hundreds of years before Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus, there was a prophet of God whose name was Isaiah, a faithful, prayerful, insightful man of God. And I can just imagine Isaiah wrestling with these truths, wrestling with the reality of human sinfulness, wrestling with the reality of sinfulness in his own people, the Israelites, who were God's chosen people, looking at the reality of his and his people's sinfulness and how God ought to react to that, and yet trying to figure out how is God still going to be faithful to his promises to save us and care for us? How is that going to go together? And God gave Isaiah a vision of a Savior, of one who would come and save the people from their sins. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we have a a writing, a recording of how Isaiah saw this in the inspiration of God's Spirit. And this is what Isaiah said about this Savior who was to come. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep, not a flattering description, by the way, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God already planted in Isaiah the understanding of the Savior who would come, and he would take what was ours. The words here in this passage are iniquity and transgression and punishment and sin. He would take what is ours so that we could have what is his, peace and healing and forgiveness. And Jesus owned this interpretation of his own death. He saw that this was what he had come to do. And when he was on the cross, in the process of being killed, you remember what he famously said? He said of those who were killing him, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. Who are doing really something very similar to what we do in a different way, but doing something very similar to what we do, hurting God's beloved. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's how Jesus died. And that's how Jesus lived, even before he died. Jesus was bringing the forgiveness of God in the kingdom of God. He came inviting tax collectors to his dinner table, people who were betraying their very own people. He invited sinners who were messing stuff up all the time. Here, sit down. Let me pass you the wine. Here's a fork. Would you like some bread? Because the kingdom of God is at hand here among us, and God's forgiveness is here for you. And he led people into a whole new life. Jesus came by his life, and especially by his death, to move us from guilt to forgiveness. Now, Jesus' cross means all kind of things for us, right? A whole bag full of meanings. And there's really no formula to this. There's no place where you have to start. But this is a pretty good place to start with God's move of us from where he finds us in guilt to where he wants to take us, to grace and forgiveness. 
I think we need to kind of practice swinging this club a little bit. I think we need to get used to this, to owning the reality that we actually need forgiveness, not just kind of bland permission and you're okay, but forgiveness, and then also receiving it. And so I want to do a little exercise with you here. When I say because he died, would all of you, please, in the contemporary service and the traditional service, I say because he died, and you say out loud, I am forgiven. Let's practice that. Because he died, I am forgiven. Amen. I want you to think right now about those things that we put into Jesus' hands to be forgiven. You go ahead and remember the things in your life like there are in mine. The people that you know you've hurt and the problems that you know you participate in and the things that you know are wrong that you do nothing about. You remember those. And now say with me, because he died, I am forgiven for the things that God would justly be angry about, for the things that we would want a loving God to be upset about. Yet nevertheless, because he died, I am forgiven. I want you to practice swinging that club. You can do it today. When you leave worship after this hour and you go back out to your car and you put the key in the ignition, before you go anywhere, you're going to feel awkward about this, but just would you try it anyway, humor me? And if you're with somebody else in your car, you can do it together. If you're with a spouse or a friend or family, say, because he died, let's pray, because he died, I am forgiven. And do it with we this time, in case you're with somebody else later, because we are together right now. Because he died, we are forgiven. And throughout this week, would you do that again? Sometime tomorrow, you might feel a lot more comfortable if you do it when you're by yourself instead of in front of a bunch of other people, but maybe God wants to challenge you in front of other people. You do it whenever you want, but throughout this week, practice swinging this club. We gotta get good at this. Because he died, I am forgiven. And you know what else? You might not always feel like it. <laughs> you might not always feel like that's true. Your guilt might look pretty dark to you. And you might think, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. I'm here to tell you, and this doesn't sound very pastoral, but if you feel like you're not forgiven, I don't really care how you feel. <laughs> okay, no, that's not true. I do care how you feel. But it's not how you feel that makes this true. It's God's word that makes this true. This was not your decision. You did not make this up. This is the verdict of God over you, that because he died, you are forgiven. And so it may come a time this week where you doubt it, where you think, I don't know that can be true. But your doubt doesn't make it any less true because God decided to forgive you. You didn't decide. This is God's verdict over you, that for the death of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Now, there's so much more that we need to talk about, so much more that this means for the ongoing presence of sin in our lives. What do we do with the sin that happens in our lives? How do we how do we learn to feel and receive the forgiveness that God's given us? How do we come to practice with others the forgiveness that we ourselves have received? We pray for it together so often. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We want to talk about our relationships. But one club at a time, right? And let's go ahead and start with this one. Can you repeat after me one more time? Because he died, I am forgiven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are full of grace, and we thank you for your love. We thank you, God, that you care about your world, that you lead us in the way of life, that you don't want to see sin happen and hurt us. We thank you that you are holy. And God, we thank you that you are gracious, that you have come to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to provide a way for us 
Even when we were yet enemies of yours, you came to us. And we thank you and worship you for your grace. And God, we each pray for ourselves right now and we pray also for each other that your word would speak to us this week, that you would help us remember that we need your forgiveness and that you would help us remember all the more that you have given us your forgiveness. And God, make us a people, I pray, that would reflect your grace to the world, that would reflect a full understanding as we grow of who you are, a full three-dimensional, full-color picture of your love and grace and your power to change our lives and change your world. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.